0: From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abi, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's clinical and translational science center. In the United States, it is suspected that 1 in 10 adults will experience a kidney stone event in his or her lifetime. Just 40 years ago, treatment for such attacks could land an individual in the hospital for days for pretty extensive surgery. Treatment has advanced greatly, but the environmental and economic factors that increase the likelihood of kidney stones have grown. Our guest is Dr. Peter Steinberg, who is the Director of Endourology and Stone Management at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. In this episode, Dr. Steinberg explains how the treatment of kidney stones has evolved and where it is going. He shares how new environmental factors such as temperature and the rise of obesity are increasing the number of patients who experience kidney stones, and how this rise is occurring outside of the working age group that was more commonly known to suffer from stone disease. Dr. Steinberg's research includes the role of the internet in urologic information, minimally invasive therapies for kidney stones, and new techniques in minimally invasive robotic and laparoscopic kidney surgery. His work has been published in several journals, including the Journal of Urology, the Journal of Endourology, and Clinical Nephrology. Hello, Dr. Steinberg. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Can you tell us about how you started in your field, a little bit about your background?
1: Sure. So uh, I actually started in in general surgery, like uh, many urologists, and um, didn't really like it that much. And when I was a second year resident, I was actually able to switch into an opening urology slot where I was training at Dartmouth and uh, sort of never looked back, actually. My route into what I Currently do um, was pretty typical. I I did a urology residency and then did a, uh, a subspecialty fellowship in uh, minimally invasive urology, which is sort of robotic surgery and laparoscopy and uh, kidney stone management. And uh, took a, a job in Portland, Maine, for a couple of years and realized that uh, I needed a slightly more specialized. Um, focus and at the time there were a couple jobs I looked at one was here and one was in LA and uh, the BI offered me a job and they said you know we've never had a kidney stone guy um, or it's been a couple decades since we have can you come and run our stone program and I said sure so that's how I ended up where I am what are kidney stones kidney stone is actually a literal uh, stone you know, an actual hard mineral, just like geology class, you know, back in high school, um, that's usually made up of calcium salts. Um, So there are a variety of different subtypes, but most of them are either calcium oxalate or calcium phosphate um, or uric acid. That's got to be 90 or 95% of stones. And these are, um, these are solid salts that form in the kidney um, in humans, and they can actually get stuck in the drainage tube of the kidney and cause pain and bleeding. And there are other things that make up stones. Some are caused by infections. Some are actually medications that come out of solution in the urine. Um, there are a couple of uh, real common medication ones. There used to be an HIV medication called indinavir that was a classic um, that caused a problem. There's some antibiotics. Um Gwifenesin, which is in Mucinex, can make stones. In the United States, about one in 10 adults will have a kidney stone in his or her lifetime. It used to be a little bit more male than female, but it's getting pretty close with the obesity epidemic, um, narrowing the gap. Um, And the incidence in terms of how many people get a stone per year is about one out of 100 adults gets a stone for the first time um, annually. So uh, it's pretty common, and they tend to occur in people who are sort of working age, so people in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, so it's, it's definitely a, an illness that causes a lot of havoc in the economy, um, as opposed to a lot of illnesses that affect people at the extremes of age. This really deals with a lot of folks who are in their uh, prime working years and causes a lot of uh, missed work and, and things like that. Kidney stones are A a major economic cost to the U.S. uh, health system, both in terms of their direct cost, it's probably on the order of eight to ten billion dollars a year spent directly caring for hospitalizations, uh, imaging tests, operative interventions. Um, But since these affect people in their working years, it's a major drain on the economy as well, and. It's actually not as much of a research priority for groups like the National Institute of Health as you would imagine. Uh, A lot of emphasis is placed on um, urologic cancers, such as prostate, uh, kidney, and bladder, uh, and testis cancer. Um, But given the amount of impact this has, uh, it's really not a huge area where public health dollars have been allocated at this point. How does a person get kidney stones? So, there are a lot of different reasons why they happen, but the most common reason is dehydration uh, and other dietary factors. So, um, people that are exposed to hot climates, hot temperatures, uh, hot jobs, uh, that's a very common crowd that we see kidney stones in. Um, There's a couple of other big issues. One is obesity. Uh, There's been a a big uptick in stone disease with uh, the obesity epidemic and the metabolic syndrome. Um, And another area where we're starting to see a lot of issues is related to um, a lot of dietary things in terms of, you know, sort of high sodium, high protein diet uh, is a big factor. Uh, And there are a couple of other things related to intestinal surgery and some endocrine conditions like hyperparathyroidism, but those are the biggies.
0: Um, So you said that it can focus on hot climates, people who are in hot climates, hot jobs. So is there a certain area or, you know focus of areas that are naturally in hot climates where it's more prevalent?
1: So there's several. So within the United States, there's something that's referred to colloquially as the stone belt, which is basically the deep south at this point. Um, But uh, the temperatures are a lot higher there, you know, Florida, Alabama, Texas, um, the uh, southwest states. So there's a much higher incidence of stone disease there than in, uh, say, the Northeast. Um, and if you look around the world, another big uh, big spot is uh, the Middle East. So the Gulf states have huge, huge rates of stone disease, probably double what it is in the US. And it's a combination of the extremely hot weather um, and the diet they have there is incredibly you know fatty, uh, a lot of animal protein, really high sodium. So it's sort of a double whammy between diet and the weather.
0: Um, can you tell us about the treatment of kidney stones
1: and how it's evolved over the years? Sure. So um, so most people who have a stone, you know, most people have a stone event and they'll end up in the emergency room and most of those people will pass their stones on their own. So probably 75 or 80% of people who have a stone will be able to expel it uh, without needing any surgical intervention. Um, but a good 10 to 20% of people um, will ultimately go on to having some type of operative intervention. And in the old days, um, which is actually not that long ago, and um, let's say in the 70s or even in the 80s, they used to actually formally operate on people for stones that were either stuck or too large to pass. Um, and people would have you know humongous incisions that were going around you know, a quarter of the circumference of their torso to get to the kidney or the ureter, um, and would have conventional open surgery and be laid up for weeks. Um, and nowadays, you know, we've got a variety of ways of treating these, but we, we do a variety of non-invasive or minimally invasive approaches um, that really make conventional surgery for these almost obsolete. So nowadays, there are three um, dominant means of treating uh, treating stones. Um, for people that won't pass them. So uh, this is either hitting them externally with shockwaves, which is something that's called shockwave lithotripsy. And lithotripsy is the generic term for breaking up a stone. Uh, There's a technique called ureteroscopy, um, which is where a small scope is put into the urinary tract and stones are broken up with lasers or removed with little graspers or baskets. Um, And then for bigger stones, there's a procedure called a PCNL, which stands for percutaneous uh, nephrolithotomy. And that's where a small incision is made directly into the kidney, going through the back um, to pull larger stones out that uh, can't be treated with the other means. So it used to be back in the, the original shockwave um, technology came around in the 80s. Um, it was created in Germany, and it was actually a, uh, a byproduct of uh, the German military aircraft industry. Um, they noticed that airplane wings would get deformed by little pieces of stone and water droplets when they were testing them in wind tunnels. And you know, 15 years later, this German aircraft company called Dornier came up with a way of treating human kidney stones in a water bath, basically, involving shockwaves. But that came around in the 80s, came to the US in the mid to late 80s, um, and very rapidly expanded. But actually, that technology's gotten worse in the last decade or two. It's it's about the only technology I know that's gotten worse as time has gone by, but uh, the shockwave machines have changed for a variety of reasons related to the physics, uh, and it's not used as much as it used to be. Um, And at the same time, the scopes that we use have gotten much smaller, and the instruments have gotten more miniaturized and better, and so there's a lot more endoscopic treatment of kidney stone surgery that's been going on in the last few decades. Uh, and the bigger stones where we do percutaneous surgery, that's, uh, you know, about five or 10% of, of all the surgeries that are done for stones, um, are done with that technique. Um, and that's mainly because there's a limit to the number of stones that are really amenable to that. You know, it's a pretty small percentage of all the stones that need to be operated on.
0: Even as you mentioned some techniques that have gotten worse, um, are there any practices that were used
1: before that you don't use now? Sure. So there are a bunch of different things that that are no longer done. You know, one thing that people tried to do, um, and this again was going back to the 70s and the 80s, they used to try to dissolve a lot of very large kidney stones. Um, They'd put tubes into people's kidneys through their back and then keep them hospitalized and put medications in through the tubes to try to dissolve, especially infected kidney stones, it just doesn't work that well. So um, that's sort of been replaced by doing percutaneous stone surgery. Um, but that and really the fact that that conventional surgery for these stones has basically disappeared, those are the two big, uh, big advances. You know, if you kind of look at the entire landscape of medicine, people keep talking about miniaturizing and doing less invasive stuff. This is probably other than maybe gallbladder surgery, probably the single biggest thing that I can think of off the top of my head where there's just been massive advances in terms of uh, the impact on patients, in terms of, of the morbidity they have from these procedures. What's next for kidney stone treatment? So for treatment, you know, basically what's been going on is a couple of things. So the instrumentation is sort of continually being getting smaller. More durable, more versatile, less expensive. Um, The devices we put through our instruments keep getting smaller um, and are um, sort of work more reliably. So, you know, we used to have laser fibers that weren't as reliable as the ones are now. The ones we have now are more flexible. The scopes are getting smaller. Um, They've even got uh, digital scopes now that are disposable. Mm you know, that's a single-use device. So there's been um, this continual move to make things sort of smaller and more versatile. The real goal is to see if you can get things small enough where you can put them into the urinary tract and not really cause any damage putting these instruments in and go in and treat people and make stone fragments small enough where you're not causing a lot of damage while you're actually doing the treatments. Um, The other thing that we're doing, you know, other than the technological advances, is really trying to better predict you know, who's going to need to be treated surgically, who's not. Um, you know, currently we do most of that based on looking at x-rays and looking at the size and location of people's stones. But we have really no urine or blood tests that we use to help predict Whether people are going to pass their stones or not, and so um, that's another frontier to sort of explore to try to figure out, you know, how to better deploy your operative resources. You know, if people come in the ER and you know they're not going to pass their stone, can you triage in the treatment more immediately than we currently do? But those are a couple of the big things that are going on. Um, You know, trying to find other markers of, of whether people are going to need surgery or not. But really, a lot of this is driven by the technology getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And obviously, preventive issues are huge. I mean, this is tied into obesity and metabolic syndrome and diabetes, and this is a problem in children now where it used to not be an issue. So um, a huge amount of impact to the health system that's going on. And a lot of it's going to fall into the preventive realm.
0: And as you're talking about preventative realm, Mm -hmm. what are things you can
1: do to prevent kidney stones? So the biggest thing is to be hydrated. Uh, And then the second biggest thing is to have a healthy diet and healthy lifestyle. Um, So a lot of stone disease, you know, again, is related to dehydration. That's a huge, huge factor. It's probably the single biggest thing we see in recurrent stone formers. Um, It's pretty easy to treat um, by just consuming fluids. Um, but you know, as far as things with obesity, um, and diet go, that's tough. Um, you know, a lot of this is related to people eating, you know, high sodium, high salts, high animal proteins, sort of fast food, westernized diets. Um, and people need to eat more fruits and veggies. You know, basically the generic advice we give to recurrent stone formers, if we don't do specialized testing on them, um, is to have a really high fluid diet, eat animal protein no more than once a day um, and limit your sodium intake. And, but that's very difficult to do with uh, with the modern, modern diets in the West.
0: What newer studies, are there new studies being done on kidney stones? And if so, what are they and what's upcoming?
1: So there are a lot of different avenues where people are investigating uh, kidney stones. So... One is obviously at the population level. There's a lot of, uh, and a lot of this information has been gathered here at Harvard, especially out of the Brigham, uh, looking at things like the nurse's health study and some other big, very large-scale studies of people's diet and health habits to try to better refine the preventive efforts. But in terms of a little more on the scientific uh, end of things, people are looking at a few different avenues. Uh, One is looking at the microbiome um, in terms of the sort of bacteria and other microorganisms that exist, especially within your intestinal tract, to see are there certain bacteria and certain people that predispose to stone formation. Uh, This is probably related to to bacteria that metabolize things in what we eat. Um, There's been a lot of work looking at specific gene issues uh, in either familial stone syndromes or transgenic mice, uh, knockout mice and that type of thing, especially related to calcium metabolism. Uh, that's a huge area of research, trying to look at uh, animal models of different types of uh, stone formation and calcium oxalate stone formation. Um, those are a couple of the big areas in terms of future efforts. There's also uh, not a ton in terms of pharmaceutical work in this area, um since you know drinking more water, eating a healthier diet's not really a pharmaceutical need. But there are a couple of specific um, agents that exist to try to block, uh oxalate excretion from the intestine which is something that's a food breakdown product this is probably going to be a big issue in people who've had intestinal surgery like gastric bypass surgery we're noticing a lot of stone formation in that crowd but a lot of the work is really focusing on on the microbiome and on some genetic factors right now
0: thank you again for joining us dr steinberg it's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you abe it's been great Next time on Think Research. It used to be believed that a vitamin D was exclusively
1: for bone health. But by 2006, 2007, it became increasingly clear that vitamin D might have a broader role, even um, a role in reducing the risk of cancer and cardiovascular disease. But there hadn't been large scale randomized clinical trials of moderate to high dose uh, supplements of vitamin D. And so we were interested in testing um, directly in a randomized clinical trial, whether these uh, supplements could reduce the risk in people without a prior history of these conditions.
0: Join us as we talk with Dr. Joanne Manson about the VITAL study. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.